You're listening to a podcast from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm Kim Curry, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal. Welcome to Here's the Issue, featuring our October 2022 issue of the Journal. Well, there are a lot of great things in the Journal this month, and I'm going to be talking about several of our features. We'll be talking about a systematic review, an education article, and two quantitative research articles, as well as a health policy piece. In addition to that, don't forget that there are several QI reports also featured in this month's issue of the journal that you can check out online at any time. So the first thing we'll talk about this month is a systematic review, and it's by Joshua Porat Dollarbrook and colleagues, and it's titled Nurse Practitioner Integration, Conceptual Development to Enhance Application in Policy and Research. Well, as we know, nurse practitioners have been introduced across the world in many countries to improve care quality and solve provider shortages, but realizing these benefits relies on their successful integration into healthcare systems. So although nurse practitioner integration has been discussed extensively, the concept is kind of defined inconsistently. And as the authors point out in their abstract, the literature can't be synthesized to create policy recommendations for management and policymakers to plan for and advance NP integration due to this problem. So the objectives that the authors had in this case were to describe and define nurse practitioner integration and enhance its applicability in research and policy. The authors used a modified Walker and Avant concept analysis to develop a conceptual model of nurse practitioner integration. The data were extracted and synthesized from 78 sources referencing this concept. And the conclusions were that nurse practitioner integration could be operationally defined as the multi-level process of incorporating nurse practitioners into the healthcare system so that nurse practitioners can practice to their full scope education and training and contribute to patient, system, and population needs. Now, the attributes of nurse practitioner integration include achievable goals, a process, introduction of the role, incorporation into organizational care models, challenging the traditional ideologies, the ability to function, providing high-quality care, and improving outcome sustainability and health system transformation. There were 17 facilitators or barriers affecting nurse practitioner integration that the authors identified. Three healthcare system levels at which integration can occur were also identified, the macro, the meso, and the micro level. Implications for practice. These findings will inform managers, policymakers, and stakeholders about nurse practitioner integration to aid in planning and policy development. Results can be used to inform research on barriers and facilitators to nurse practitioner integration. Our second feature this month is by Shabana Youssef, Joseph Hagen, and Suzette Stone. It's titled, A Curriculum to Improve Knowledge and Skills of Nurse Practitioners and Physician Assistants in the Pediatric Emergency Department. And this article describes an educational program that was implemented in a tertiary children's hospital emergency department. Now, most nurse practitioners and physician assistants haven't had a lot of formal training to work in a pediatric emergency department. 
Although the nurse practitioners and PAs had no formal emergency department training in this particular case, there were some nurse practitioners and PAs who were acute care certified. And so the authors describe a curriculum designed to improve knowledge and skills of NPs and PAs in the setting. The curriculum consisted of three models, namely online lecture series, procedural workshops, and case scenarios in a simulated setting. The first module consisted of an online lecture on common emergency diagnoses. And the second module consisted of procedural workshops, uh, including lumbar puncture, incision and drainage of abscesses, gastrostomy insertion, and laceration repair. And the third module included simulation scenarios on emergency department-specific cases, for example, seizure in an infant, bronchiolitis, and ruptured appendicitis with shock. Each module was evaluated by a survey technique, and participants rated each item on the survey using a Likert scale response. Both nurse practitioners and PAs demonstrated an increase in knowledge scores in the post-test versus the pre-test, and participant survey evaluations were positive with positive comments. This is a novel curriculum that meets educational needs of NPs and PAs in this particular institution, and it could be used as a model to train them at other tertiary care pediatric emergency departments. Our third feature this month is a quantitative research study by George Musa and colleagues, and it's titled Comparing the Outcomes of YAG Laser Anterior Capsulotomies Performed by an Advanced Nurse Practitioner to Ophthalmologists in the Management of Anterior Capsular Contraction Syndrome. Here's some background on this. Um, Anterior capsular contraction syndrome describes the progressive fibrotic phimosis of the anterior capsular bag within the eye that usually occurs a few months after cataract surgery. YAG laser anterior capsulotomy is the most common treatment option due to the low risk profile of this intervention. This group of providers in an ophthalmology specialty practice chose to evaluate the outcomes of an advanced nurse practitioner in conducting this laser intervention comparing the results to those seen by ophthalmologists doing the same procedure. So the study represented a single-center, retrospective, continuous case series of 108 eyes that underwent YAG anterior laser capsulotomy between January 2017 and July 2020 at the Birmingham and Midland Eye Center, the second-largest tertiary referral center in the United Kingdom. Results show that the groups treated by advanced nurse practitioners and ophthalmologists were similar in respect to age, gender, and laterality of the laser procedure. Eyes treated by ophthalmologists had significantly more ocular comorbidities, the most common of which was glaucoma. Although the complication rate was higher in the ophthalmologist group, it did not reach statistical significance. However, there was a trend toward significance in the retreatment rate, with 8.6% of eyes lasered by ophthalmologists requiring further treatment, and no repeat procedure was needed in the advanced nurse practitioner group. Conclusions were that YAG anterior capsulotomy leads to good visual outcomes and a low complication rate in both ophthalmologist and advanced nurse practitioner groups. Implications are that advanced nurse practitioners can deliver results that are comparable with those of experienced ophthalmologists. Our next feature is also a quantitative research study, and it's by David Meyer and colleagues, and it's titled Healthcare Utilization in a Nurse Practitioner-Led Atrial Fibrillation Clinic. Atrial fibrillation is the most common cardiac arrhythmia, and it's emerging in prevalence with our increasingly aging population. The complex nature of the disease and its association with significant morbidity and mortality has resulted in a call for a new integrative and multidisciplinary approach to atrial fib management. So the purpose of this study was to determine if the use of a nurse practitioner-led atrial fibrillation clinic can improve care for patients. 
For the methodology, a nurse practitioner-led atrial fib clinic was designed to serve as an independent clinic for standardizing patient care and improving access to care. Baseline patient demographics, care pathways, and interventions were characterized in the clinic. Primary outcomes were hospitalizations and emergency department visits before and after clinic implementation. Over 1,400 patients were enrolled in the atrial fibrillation clinic between January 2016 and June 2018, The mean age at the first atrial fib clinic visit was 68.7 years, 54% of patients were male, and the mean body mass index was 31. Among the patients, over 45% had paroxysmal atrial fib, 43.6% persistent atrial fib, and 5.5% permanent atrial fib. With an average of three plus or minus three clinic visits per patient, the number of patients with one or more hospitalizations decreased by 78% after clinic implementation. Similarly, the number of patients with one or more ER visits decreased by 79%, and 22.7% of patients avoided at least one ER visit. Conclusions were that patients with one or more hospitalizations or one or more ER visits decreased within two years after the implementation of a nurse practitioner-led atrial fibrillation clinic. And implications are that implementation of such a clinic in the United States may reduce hospitalizations and ER visits if it's implemented in an integrative model. Our guest today is Dr. Amanda Comer. Dr. Comer is the System Director for Advanced Practice Providers at Baptist Memorial Healthcare Corporation in Memphis, Tennessee. She's triple certified as a family nurse practitioner, acute care nurse practitioner, and emergency nurse practitioner. And she co-authored a feature in this month's issue titled, Consideration of the Emergency Nurse Practitioner as a Population Within the APRN Consensus Model, a SWOT Analysis. Her co-authors were Dr. Jennifer Wilbeck, Dr. Lorna Schumann, and Dr. Wesley Davis, all certified emergency nurse practitioners. In their article, the authors examine strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, or SWOT, that can be anticipated in considering a repositioning of the ENP specialty from its current position as a specialty area certification and moving it to an additional population group within the APRN consensus model. Here's some background. After adoption of the 2008 Consensus Model for Advanced Practice Registered Nurses, or APRNs, evolution of the nurse practitioner role and emergency nurse practitioner specialty within the NP group have both outpaced regulatory standards. There is a lack of uniformity among regulators, health insurance providers, and employers in acknowledging the ENP specialty. This has created barriers to practice and access to care. Now, as a reminder to everyone, the Consensus Model depicts four APRN roles nurse practitioner, certified nurse midwife, nurse anesthetist, and clinical nurse specialist. And within these four roles, there are six population foci, family, adult gero, neonatal, pediatrics, women's health, and psych mental health. Everything beyond that is considered a specialty practice and not a population focus. Not everyone is a fan of the consensus model, but there has been a push to get every state's board of nursing and legislators to adopt it with the stated goal of ensuring uniformity. A strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, or SWOT analysis was used to assess the current state of the ENP specialty. And the authors focused on the LACE model for APRN regulation, which is licensure, accreditation, certification, and education. Data were collected from peer-reviewed literature, clinical subject matter experts, and academic and advanced practice executive leaders. 
They found variances in ENP licensure, recognition, and acknowledgement among state boards of nursing that leave the ENP specialty in a precarious position. And the authors also found that for each of the strengths and opportunities that could exist in recognizing the ENP at the population level of the consensus model, there are abundant weaknesses and threats. Their findings reveal that the ENP specialty is an evolving role that deserves regulatory legitimization. So Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kim. It's a pleasure to be here today. Now, I thought this was an exciting article because it raises the question of what if, and I love those questions. So to me, it's an example of outside the box thinking. So what if we just created a different situation for this specialty? Can you talk to us briefly about the point where you as a group of specialists came up with the idea to take up envisioning your role by going back to the level of the consensus model? What inspired you to do this analysis? Absolutely. So there have been many growing challenges faced by emergency nurse practitioners across the country. Many of the challenges ultimately fall back to the lack of recognition for the ENP at the level of licensure. Um, This impacts reimbursement, credentialing, and ultimately scope of practice for the ENP. How this is handled can vary significantly state by state, Um, We also know from a regulatory standpoint, the consensus model or the LACE model is what provides the national guidelines for these decisions. It was from that place that we wanted to think through what might happen if the ENP was recognized at a population level, similar to the FNP or the psych NP. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You start looking at it from the framework that it is currently set in and thinking, Well, that's what we're going to need to address. Yeah. So let's first talk about those strengths and opportunities. Incidentally, I want to point out that the authors have depicted in tables within the article how they organize the SWOT analysis by taking the LACE model and addressing how each consideration they identified affected or was affected by licensure, accreditation, certification, and education. And I thought this visual was very helpful and could be used by nurse practitioners to view similar characteristics of their own specialty. So can you talk to us about some of the main strengths and opportunities that are presented to emergency nurse practitioners should the specialty be moved to the population level? Yes, there were several strengths that were identified. Um, perhaps, or the one that, that stands out to me the most is that if ENPs were recognized at the population level, this would mean that academic preparation would be required and the ENP would be the entry to practice in terms of licensure. So it would not be built upon the FNP as it is currently um, in the model that we use with the ENP being a specialty practice. So in turn, this could provide additional clarity for hiring institutions, regulatory bodies, and credentialing or payer organizations. And I want to point out to everybody that, of course, there is academic preparation and clinical preparation that is undertaken. This this specialty has gone through an analysis of what is adequate preparation for the ENP role as it stands today. But now you're saying we're going to move that back to the, the educational program itself. That's right. The pre-licensure educational program for the nurse practitioner. Thank you. Yeah. Now, moving on to weaknesses and threats, I noticed one of the things that you did in this area was list the problems created for ENPs by not being recognized as a population level practice. So can you mention just a few of the weaknesses and threats that are most impactful to the role right now? Sure, absolutely. So although there are many strengths, there are also 
um, many weaknesses or threats to consider if the ENP was moved to a population within the APRN consensus model. And the patient is our ultimate why and our true north in our considerations. So including quality, cost of care, experience, and access. Therefore, the most impactful threat potentially could be access to patient care. Um, the ENP as a population could limit access to patient care in critical access or frontier areas where the ENPs who are family prepared frequently provide ongoing care in the community. So licensure at the population level for ENPs could potentially limit the scope of practice and preclude additional workforce abilities. For example, I live in rural Mississippi where it's not uncommon for an ENP to moonlight in the emergency department and then provide primary care throughout the day. Um, communities like mine are dependent on the adaptability of our NP workforce. So any change to the consensus model for APRN regulation must be cautiously and extensively studied to make certain or sure that unintended consequences do not threaten or further threaten access to patient care. Yeah, great points. And I think one of the biggest points you're bringing up there is we're not just analyzing this from the standpoint of, well, how does it impact us, the emergency nurse practitioners? You're talking about what is the impact on patient care or the accessibility of patients to emergency services under the current scheme? Well, here's what we all want to know. What are your next steps? How do you plan to approach this now that you've done the analysis? Do you have some action steps you can take? Yes, absolutely. So it's our hope that this article and publishing this analysis raises further awareness for the emergency nurse practitioner nationally, and then also among hiring institutions, regulatory bodies, credentialing, and or payer organizations. So the best placement for ENPs within the consensus model remains to be determined. Although AAENP or the American Academy of Emergency Nurse Practitioners currently has representation on the LACE network, and we plan to continue these discussions with organizational members and key stakeholders. So it's our hope to further not only awareness, but also encourage exploration um, for what best supports the emergency nurse practitioner to continue providing high quality patient care to our communities. What it sounds like you're planning there is, is a great plan because it includes bringing in other groups that are invested in this process and everybody needs to hear what the issues are, positive and negative, and then come to some consensus and plan together for it to work. That's right. Well, this is great stuff. I think it's exciting perhaps for nurse practitioners in other specialty areas too, to see a way of going about it when you're reassessing a specialty role. So thank you very much. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of our listeners and be sure and look for more podcasts from the Journal of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners.